Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Welcome to The War Room. My name is Jason Sanchez, and I am your host. Our guest is Aaron Hebbard, commonly known as Heb. He is a church planter and pastor of Covenant Church in Redlands, California. He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Glasgow in the field of literature, theology, and the arts. Heb is the author of Reading Daniel as a Text in Theological Hermeneutics, and the author and editor of the forthcoming book, New 95 Thesis of Reformation Today. He is also full professor of theology and the arts at Community Christian College in Redlands, California. Heb and his lovely wife, Nicole, have been married since 1991, and together they have six children and one grandchild. Heb, welcome to the War Room. Thank you, sir. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. Good, good. Hey, brother, uh, it's been long coming to get you on here, and I'm glad we finally had the chance to uh, to sync up, even though we see each other weekly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's it's been it's been time tough to get our schedules together, but it's true. Uh, yeah, can you uh, can you tell us who Aaron Hebert is and uh, just give us a brief testimony of what the Lord has done in your life and and how He got you to this point? Right. Well, I was raised in a Christian home. Uh, it wasn't a nice traditional home in with a full family. Uh, I was basically raised by my single mother, and I had one brother, but uh, my mother's parents were also heavily involved in my upbringing and uh so i was really blessed uh to have all of them in my life uh he was a assemblies of god pastor and so i grew up with a uh, a knowledge and a respect and a reverence for god and that was of course uh one of those things that kept me from um defaming God or dishonoring him along uh, life and in temptation. And so grew up in the church, met my uh, my wife in the church, uh, got married in the church, went to a uh, Christian college. Uh, I was in and out between public and Christian schools growing up. Uh, but yeah, I was very churched. And uh, when I was 18 years old, I got the call into ministry, and in my uh, little world of knowledge, I thought that either meant a missionary or a pastor or an evangelist, and of those three, I say, well, really, my passion is, is teaching the Word of God, so I guess that would be a pastor. Uh, I went to Vanguard University, and uh, I remember very distinctly that um, in the discussions of what it meant to be a pastor, there are certain classes I had to take, and then there were certain classes that uh, were there for my my knowledge in the Bible. And I had one very influential uh, professor there who actually introduced me to the Reformed theology, and he was the influence that said, if you want to be a pastor, 
biblical studies should be your major, not pastoral studies. And he meant by that that the word was everything, and studying to be a pastor isn't as good a preparation as learning the word of God. And he was absolutely right. And so uh, along the way, I was doing some of these pastoral classes and very, very turned off by some of the stuff that was just going on and the the hassles of being a pastor. And then suddenly it struck me as I was looking at my professors, it's like, wait a minute, they're teaching the word. They're not worrying about how much to spend on the church parking lot and conflict management, this and that. They teach the word probably uh, four, five, six times a week. That's what I want to do. And so uh, I realized that my call wasn't nullified. It was just, hey, I was called into the ministry of the word, but it was more of the academic uh, calling into the word. And so that's where I pointed myself. And uh, I I was there from, so I entered school at 1988. And uh, so all the way up through probably uh, 2010, uh, it was all about academics and it was in 2010 that I started thinking about uh, ministry of the word within the church context and that basically takes us up to today. So you said that uh, you know some of the the classes you were taking some of the emphasis that they put on you as far as becoming a pastor turned you off do you think it had to do because of the emphasis was misguided it was pointing you down a direction of of church growth and and making the church more of a business instead of an actual uh shepherding of a flock and and uh, and coming beside uh, uh those people that god has put under you to teach and feed and, and nurture do you think that's the reason why it turned you off they did have the emphasis on shepherding and pastoring people but Along with it, yeah, all the business end of it and filing these paperwork. And so, yeah, a lot of that was uh, a turnoff. Um, and the shepherding of the people, uh, when they were talking about psychological counseling and this and that, it was all kind of just a, a, a turnoff, really. But uh, when we talk about that one professor... Uh, his name was Ronald Wright, and um, he he said, look, I am a pastor. I, you are my students, but I shepherd you through the word. And it wasn't a pastor in a traditional sense, but I would have no problem coming to him with more uh, pastoral questions that I would have rather than a pastor that I would have at the time. Um, and in fact, uh, when my wife and I were first married, uh, our primary church attendance was at a Sunday school that he taught at a at a local uh, Assemblies of God church, and uh, it was he was very influential, and it was so much of an emphasis of teaching the word, more so than uh, all the the peripheral issues of pastoral life. And so uh, from there, after, after 2010, you went to uh, uh, Glasgow, didn't you, for a time? No, here's what it was. In, I started my, my trips to Glasgow in 1999. Um, I had finished my master's looking for an interdisciplinary degree, PhD, um, and really the better ones were in the UK, and plus having a full family and a full-time job. 
uh, the UK system allowed for me to do more research and writing here stateside and only having to go over there once, twice a year and uh, no more classwork. It was all basically jump into you writing your thesis. And um, so it was very conducive for my life at the time. And so I was one of those, and this would be my confession as a Christian academic, that if I were to be put up the choice of being ex expelled from the academic community or be excommunicated from the church community, I would have, uh, often during those years, I would have chosen to be excommunicated from the church community rather than to be expelled from the academic community. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I saw the error of my ways that academics are there to serve the church. Uh, and I always had this superiority complex like, well, you know, pastors are okay, but the real work is being done by the scholars. And when you, when you come across men like John Calvin, who said, yeah, here he is, he's both. He teaches in the academic area, and he's a pastor. He says, well, this is for the church. Uh, even there are some scholars that are still living and breathing today and say, yeah, they're highly respected scholars, but ultimately it's for the church. And it started changing my mind how to be more contributing to the church rather than to the scholastic community. Right. And now you said that that happened, that transformation in your mind happened while you were reading Calvin? No, th that's just an example I would okay. use today. Um, I would say part of, part of my transformation in this respect was as I was lecturing in class and I had, um, my, my PhD is now behind me, but I'm lecturing and I am pointing out the heirs of the church and uh, you and I both know that's easy to do. You could take pop shops all day long mm -hmm. about what's going wrong in the church today. And then this kid raised his hand and he said, so what are you going to do about it? Mm. And it stopped me in my tracks. It was like the Holy Spirit spoke right through that kid, slapped me in the face and said, how dare you take pop shots at the church? How dare you? criticize the church and not offer a solution, not be part of a solution. And it was from that point on go, oh, yeah, I'm wrong for bringing up problems, but not bringing up solutions. Right. So the Lord really used that to rearrange my thinking that I need to be more proactive in being a better churchman and less concerned about being the academic. Right, right. That's Gary North that says uh, you can't beat something with nothing, and yeah. uh, you know. So God gave you the tools and 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 the brain to uh, to 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 be able to critique the church, but also to be able to act upon it and and to actually get your hands dirty and get in there and, and do what you can to reform the church uh, from right. Where, and right. I I knew the answers. I go okay. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. But I wasn't doing the solution. Right. I wasn't actually involved. Right. Yeah. Well, let's let's take off your your uh, your uh, scholastic hat and put on a, a hat of a critic. Now let's turn the tables and and let's hear your critique of the the modern uh, seminary system and 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 the educational scholastic system. What 
what are some issues that you have seen going through it? And then now being a pastor, looking back, what are some things that we need to reform within the seminary system? Yeah, and here's here's one that would make me perhaps uh, abnormal uh, in that respect because I because I was pointing toward academics, I went to university rather than seminary, uh, and seminary obviously is training specifically for ministry, uh, and again that wasn't my training, but at the same time. I think there is a huge problem in seminaries, and I'll even go down to, because uh, as an educator, I really am keen on the liberal arts, and here's what I think is a an endemic problem, is that there are colleges that are started by denominations, and these denominations say, well, we want to train a generation to think like our generation has thought and wants to think they're in the future and so uh, they want to get a great name for themselves so they'll slowly bring in other scholars that maybe don't quite line up with their denominational convictions and then the young men that are being trained for their ministry they grow up under these men and they become the denominational leaders, and then suddenly you're going to see that the whole denomination is shifting left, and it doesn't start in the denomination. It started in the colleges and the seminaries because they compromised for reputation's sake at that level, and that's where really things go south. So if we were to reform that idea, of seminary and, and ministerial training, really it should be done locally, even if you have a an umbrella of, let's say, a good name seminary, but there's far more latitude and really demand for a practicum, for interaction, for discipleship, that this guy is in there doing pastoral work under a trusted pastor. Uh, and it's not just sitting in the ivory tower because we know that sometimes these kids get out of the ivory tower and they go to pursue ministry and they realize they haven't been trained properly. They haven't been uh, ready to face some of the dilemmas that just come out of the blue. So to me, uh, there is the encroaching liberal agenda and that's a problem, but there's also the problem of not having the lifeblood of the local church. And really, I would say that a system where a church is growing older and a pastor should have mentors under him, disciples under him that he is mentoring so that he can train a new generation of potential elders for that particular church's ministry. Uh, You know, uh, Sunday we just talked about that, that Moses did a good job of training Joshua and the people fully accepted Joshua. The problem with Joshua was that he didn't disciple, not one, but he should have discipled 12 tribal leaders so that the tribes would have leadership. Uh, As opposed to we look at the book of Judges and you see a nation floundering because they lack leadership. Uh, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But if you could have had Joshua multiplied by 12, 
the nation would have been in far better standing. Right, right. Let's move on to uh, to your your endeavor here that you've been talking about and you've been working on for a number of years uh, to build your own online Christian college and your curriculum. And, and can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, as I worked with Community Christian College, uh, we were lacking in the online competition. And so we went with another company that was basically a subcontract. And uh, I did facilitate a few of their classes. And I went to our president and I said, look, these classes are very weak in the Christian worldview. And he said, yeah, I know, but it's the only thing we have. And I said, uh, I'll build it better and cheaper. And um, it didn't take a lot of brain power. He and I got along really well. And so he gave me the green light and I built these classes. Uh, some things happened a couple years later. Uh, the administration changed and so they terminated my contract. But again, that's the will of the Lord. And he says, okay, instead of a program, I want you to have a full four year standalone college offering. And so I say, look, here is the curriculum that I would want my children educated in. Here's the questions I want to ask my children. And so I kind of have my children in mind by saying, this is what I would want. If this is what I want for my children, I think more parents are out there that would want this kind of quality. And it doesn't bow to the foolishness of the academia that is out there, even in the Christian circles. Unfortunately, I would say that there are so many Christian colleges that simply take secular content, uh, sprinkle it with a little bit of holy water, uh, begin class with prayer, and they call it Christian education, as opposed to what the Bible talks about as Christian education. It is a foundation. The, the Bible is the springboard into all thinking, and all things are to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ, and that there is nothing that the grid of biblical critique cannot touch. And that is what we have to build as Christian education is from the ground up and every step along the way. And obviously we interact with secular ideas, but you put it up against the word of God. Does it stand or fall? Uh, but it's never to critique uh, the Bible or to conflate them. I don't even actually like the, the, the terminology of faith integration because it's not really an integration because it sounds like you're taking two equal components and merging them. Uh, so to me, Christian education is biblical foundation. Amen. So this is this, what, what, what uh, age group are you aiming at for this? Is this post uh, homeschool uh, or, or where would, where would this begin? Right. If I were to name my ideal student, it would be a dual enrollment of homeschoolers, let's say about 16 to 18 uh, for their first few years. And then they would get their full BA by uh, age 20. And I'm a I'm a firm believer in dual enrollment that generally speaking, homeschool kids can catch on to this material because Education is not distinct from discipleship. Homeschool kids are generally uh, emphasized with 
homework and schoolwork and lecture and discipleship is all one big ball of wax. So that this is the material that I would love the the kids not only to engage in, but the parents and the kids together. And they will do far more with it than what we would demand academically in, in terms of turning in homework. So if a kid can get his BA by 20 and let's say he wanted to go on to his master's, then he could do that early. He could probably get his master's by the time some of his friends are getting their bachelor's degrees. And uh, I'm also a big believer in that, hey, if a kid is mature enough to marry early, then uh, good for him. And I think it's good for the kingdom to have our young men prepared before their secular counterparts. And uh, if if this young man has a uh, a lovely lady that he is courting and the father said, well, not until you get your degree. Well, hey, he could get married earlier because he's done his dual enrollment work and uh, we could start a family early. Amen. Amen. Be fruitful, multiply and get going. Yeah, exactly. huh? Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, we know that, that Christ is the foundation of all education, but uh, many times we, we, we speak to other Christians that are, it's really foreign to them, the concept of, of homeschooling, because it's just the indoctrination of our society. Uh, you know, they went through public school and uh, they think their children need to do the same thing. What are some obstacles that you've come across speaking to Christians that, uh, that, that have their children in public school? And how can we make homeschooling the standard and, and not the exception? Well, again, I would say that do you honestly take the Bible seriously? And so the the biggest fight I would have would be with those parents who claim the lordship of Christ and yet they send their kids to government schools because this is the battleground that we are training our children to be cultural warriors, and yet we're enculturating them or allowing them to be enculturated by a government system that their only objective is to turn out good government citizens, not warriors for the kingdom. And some of these Christian parents say, well, uh, we just ask them what they learned, and then if it's something bad, then we undo it at, at night. And I'm sorry, but first of all, that makes no sense because if you've been a parent who sent a kid to school and you come, they come back and you ask them, well, what'd you learn? Nine times out of ten, they're going to say nothing. Mm -hmm. So what are you going to combat? But in this school system, it's the air they breathe. They have been taught to divorce God from anything. So where God is the providential guide of history, we're just learning facts and figures and dates and there's no God involved. Where God has ordered the uh, the mathematical system at, at all levels, we're taught that it has nothing to do with God. Science is just uh, an evolutionary process as opposed to a creator who has designed things beautifully and wonderfully and in order. And so God is simply divorced from every facet of thinking. And so you expect that someone that is trained that way is suddenly going to mature into life and not want to divorce God from daily decision making as opposed to a homeschool base where God is in every nook and cranny, or I should say 
ought to be in every nook and cranny of everything they're learning, then absolutely, when they're done with their formal schooling, then they still think about God every inch of the universe. And that's what homeschooling ought to be about. Um, I could go on to say that children are our most precious possessions that the Lord gives us. And uh, Luke 640, uh, Jesus says that when a student is fully mature, that he will be like his teacher. And to whom did God give these children? Well, to us as parents. He actually didn't give them to these teachers, and he certainly didn't give them to uh, Caesar's minions who teach in the, in the government schools. So I think about my children, and I say, who do I want them to be like? Well, honestly, I want them to be like Christ. Well, who's going to show them Christ? Well, their mother and I are going to show them Christ. And even your good Christian school teacher, I don't know them. I don't know that they're actually going to exemplify Christ, if they're going to lead them to Christ, if they have any interest actually in shaping them into the image of Christ. So to me, God has given the children to us to show them, to lead them to Christ, that they might think God's thoughts after them. Uh, of course, one of the homeschoolers' favorite chapters of the Bible is Deuteronomy 6, that, hey, when they rise up, you, you teach them about the Lord. When they go to bed, you teach them about the Lord. When they're in the home setting, you teach them about the Lord. When they're out in the public square, you teach them about the Lord. Wherever they go, whenever they are throughout their day, you're teaching them the ways of the Lord. And this isn't just simply having to memorize Scripture all day long, but it's looking for God's thumbprint everywhere and enjoying what He has made or saying, look, they are trying to erase God's thumbprint, and you realize, hey, that's something that's wrong. And so it's not like looking Pollyanna at the life around you and saying, oh, it's all good because God is uh, all over the place. No, there are, there are pockets of culture that are doing their best to get rid of God. Uh, and, of course, public school basically does this. Uh, not, not maliciously, but by saying, oh, well, we're just neutral. It's like, well, no, by saying there's no talk for or against God is saying you're against God because God demands lordship everywhere. And by saying there's no lordship here, you have denounced it. That's right. Now, practically speaking, I mean, people may look at you and say, look, uh, Aaron Hebert, he's an educator. He's a scholastic. He, he's a pastor. He's a teacher. Uh, yeah, he can homeschool his kids, but but what about me? You know, I'm a factory worker or I'm a single mom. Uh, what are some practical steps and, and things that we could do? I know at, at Covenant Church we're planning uh, right now to to uh, implement a, a, a co-op here in the fall. And uh, can you maybe walk us through that, what, what our plans are right now for that at Covenant Church? And that way the listeners that are interested in maybe incorporating that into their uh, churches or areas, they could do so. Right. Well, I would first start off by saying, let's talk just for a moment, theoretically, about, hey, I'm a factory worker. What about me? And my question would be, to whom did God give these children? He didn't give me, Aaron Hebert, kids that 
I'm a pastor, I'm a theologian, I'm, I'm a scholar, therefore I'm well equipped. Uh, yes, those things are true, but if God gave you his children to the factory worker, then he, the most intelligent being of all times, uh, has chosen to put that child in that household, and you, the factory worker, can't question God's providence. You can't say, well, God knew what he was doing when he gave Aaron Hebbard six kids, but he wasn't thinking about my school situation because I can't do it. Well, God believes you can. And he doesn't say you have to do it alone, which leads me to your other question about a a co-op. If you have a good church body that honestly takes it as their conviction that we are responsible for educating our own children, then let's do something about it. Let us organize and this lady might be good at math and this guy might be good at science and, and this lady might be good at uh, teaching stories to the little guys. Hey, pool our resources and together uh, work on a solution maybe once a week that we could share our strengths and our kids get exposed to things that maybe they can't from their own parents. And it's, yes, it's church sponsored, but it keeps the responsibility at the parental level as opposed to the Christian school that says, well, let us help you out so much. We'll just take your kids from you and we'll educate them in a Christian environment. Uh, not that I'm deeply opposed to Christian school, but I don't find it to be the prime biblical model. I agree with you. So then uh, what is it that you recommend uh, when you're starting out a co-op? Is it a one day a week thing? Walk us through that. What's the plan? Yeah. First of all, I'd, I would do it once a week so that is it, it's a time of fellowship. It's a time of drawing upon the strengths of other parents within this co-op. And uh, for the other days of the week, that there is enough teaching in that one day that they are capable of doing homework in areas that maybe their own parents are weak in. So uh, let's say there's a lady who can do biology, but your own parents are a little bit wobbly on that. Yeah, you could say, oh, there is, uh, here's the lessons laid out in biology. I know what to do. And if I have a question, yeah, maybe they're accessible through the, throughout the week or maybe hey i'll just wait till next week to to solve this issue uh but it kind of gives them a track of where to go and what to do throughout the week and the other idea would be that uh they can they can grow together in fellowship uh one of the one of the criticisms and i really don't buy into it but one of the criticisms against homeschooling is the uh, social aspect that, oh, they're not being socialized. Uh, my first response to that is generally that's false in, in the first place because they are learning to interact capably with a wide variety of ages as opposed to when they get into a school setting, and this is public or Christian school, uh, that they're only, a, if you're a 12-year-old, you're only around 12-year-olds, and you only know how to interact with 12-year-olds, and generally speaking, it's going to be just the guys or just the girls, and 
it, it, it's not an iron sharpens iron environment. It usually ends up being a company of fools. So this is the kind of environment where a co-op is not going to have, generally speaking, an abundance of one particular age that there is going to be interaction across the age divide. Right. And that moves us on to the next question, uh, which is how do we rediscover and implement multi-generational discipleship, uh, which produces champions for the kingdom of God? Uh, we, we do that with our homeschooling and then how can we uh, implement this multi-generational uh, discipleship? Again, as you appeal to the word, you have to realize that the parents have to have this conviction. And so we in the church, we would pray that each parent take on the responsibility of the discipleship of their own children. And it's not just for uh, an obligation, but it's to see with joy the growing up of your child into a man of God, into a woman of God, and you train your children to train their children so that when they raise up their generations, you as a grandparent are blessed because you have put in the work into your children and you see that their children are doing it for their children. And this is really your legacy. If you think about uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, someone was asking him about his credentials and he says, you are my letters. Yes, I've written letters, but you are my epistles. If, if someone wants to wonder what I've been up to, I would point to you. And we could say the same thing. Uh, it doesn't really matter about our accomplishments in life as much as the accomplishment we have when we raise godly seed. And that godly seed understands that this is a multi-generational family that we are going to be faithful to the Lord generation after generation after generation. And, and that's something that you have to catch and you have to uh, pass on. And it also is very humbling in that uh, you're going to have to be okay that your children stand on your shoulders and you're going to have to be okay with your grandchildren standing on the shoulders of your children who are standing on your shoulders that, hey, we should rejoice if my grandchild knows more than I do. Amen. And I look at, I look at my, uh, my seven-year-old, and yeah, if I were to compare myself to him at seven, uh, he already knows more than I did. Maybe I would even put myself up to 10 or 12 uh, because I catechized my boy and no one catechized me. Right. And he now knows more and that brings me joy. And I would even say this, uh, my son at seven probably knew more and he's my fifth child. My first child was uh, a boy as well. And uh, I wasn't as rigorous in my catechizing of my first boy. And so even my fifth boy is higher ranked than my uh, my first boy. But this is what we are uh, spiraling up to. And so I look forward to seeing my my children's children know more than my children do. Excellent. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. But now uh, in, in modern evangelicalism, the church today, we're dealing with the remnants of, of parents that didn't teach their children 
and it wasn't a multi-generational passing down uh, of the oracles of God. So how do we penetrate and awaken an apathetic and a pietistic American church? What are some of the things that we can do? I know that you've been dealing with uh, trying to bring in a bunch of pastors from our local area to pray together on a weekly basis. Uh, talk about, you know, engaging uh, the apathy and how can we, uh, you know, overcome that? That is a, a very difficult obstacle to overcome. Uh, what do you have to do to get someone to have a reaction where apathy is their default mode? Um, and by the way, when you mentioned the pietistic church, uh, I want to make, make it clear that I'm not against piety, uh, but, uh, I mean, we're all called to be pious, right? Right. It's not that, Hey, the end goal is just to be me. Okay. With God and everything else goes to hell in a handbasket. So what we're looking at is how do you get the church to realize that they're in a culture war? Uh, it's almost as if you have to take the ostrich, grab his head and pull it out of the sand and tell him, look around. If you don't do something, we're all going to lose this battle in a major way. And I don't know really what motivates them if they're not a warrior at heart. Uh, maybe they have some sympathetic strings for um, the hurting and the lost. Maybe they want to do something there. But honestly, it is a difficult task to say, hey, we need to wake up. We have a battle plan. We need to fight. We've been given the command to fight, and we've actually been given the victory. So we need to enact it. Right. That all sounds very good. Let's go do it. But if you're apathetic, yeah, well, someone else will do that. How much do you think a peasant millennial uh, mindset and teaching from the pulpit has played into that? I think, again, like I would put back with the public school, it's probably more the air we breathe. If you are, even if it's not necessarily being preached from the pulpit, uh, but it's just kind of this attitude that we carry along the way that, hey, yeah, the, the, hell, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and uh, let's just pray that the Lord comes quickly. And you know what? I'm going to say this. Of course, we're going to pray that the Lord comes quickly. But in the meantime, put your hand to the plow, because I always think, let's say the Lord comes back tomorrow. Are you going to be ashamed of not entering into the battle? And I think, yeah, you are. It does. Let's say uh, you, whatever camp you fall in, as far as the millennium is concerned, that is less of a concern than what you do in the meantime. If you're going to sit on a hill and wait for the Lord to return, well, Paul's already dealt with you, and you're in the wrong. But when God has given us our, our charge, and he's given us the battle plan, and he's given us his authority, and what else do we need except to go and take dominion of this world in the name of Christ. And in that respect, we are optimistic. Mm -hmm. But the pessimism uh, is just pervasive. And it 
it leaks out everywhere because, I mean, let's let's face it, if you didn't have the optimistic call that the Bible has on us and you were just to look at the newspaper, you were just to look at the headlines, you would be pessimistic. Right. But as we look at the the charge of the Bible, it's like, wait a minute, who is in charge? Who is this world belonging to? It is my father's world. And therefore, I must make this world reflect the reality of heaven. Amen. Amen, brother. And that's one of the things that uh, really uh, brought me much joy when you first brought, uh, came to me and, and, and you showed me your, your vision that you were sitting on for the last five years, uh, this, this thing that you call In Christ Redlands, uh, this, this full-orbed, uh, optimistic mindset and plan that you, that you wanted to implement. Uh, when you laid it out, man, I was just overjoyed to, to see that there was another brother that's like-minded in thinking that, look, our king is on the throne and we have a great commission, and we need to go out there and uh, be proactive in reaching to the community. I want to, I want you to lay out uh, this vision that God has given you, and that uh, we we're just barely at the precipice of of starting to implement little parts of it. And yeah, it's a, a big thing to uh, to bite into, but um, I, I know that uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit, in due time, these things can be accomplished. Can you lay out that vision for us? Absolutely. So the thing is that God has planted me in this little town or medium-sized town called Redlands, and I want to see Christians working together with Christians to build the kingdom, to make us, the church, a visible reality. So many times we resign ourselves to the corners and say, well, we'll see you next Sunday. And uh, the culture says, keep your faith private you can have it, but don't bring it out. And we say, okay. And it is so shameful because while faith is personal, that does not mean it's private. And it is supposed to be a personal and corporate faith. It is also supposed to be a very public force and influence in our culture. So the idea of In Christ Redlands is to and again, I'll say what John Calvin said. The job of the visible church is to make the invisible church visible. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we have churches that we go to, and there is this thing called the invisible church that is on the march, and we need to make it so visible that the world says, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. If the world isn't telling the church hey, you can't do that, then we're not doing enough. If right. we could sit back and say, oh, well, we don't want to upset anyone. We don't want to step on any toes. Well, Christ already promised us persecution. And again, we're not being persecuted because we're going out and to being jerks, but we're being persecuted because we're doing the will of our Father and reflecting the commission of Christ. So this idea of in Christ Redlands is... Uh, yeah, it's kind of big and gargantuan in, on one sense that, <laughs> hey, uh, let us dedicate ourselves to only supporting Christian businesses. And Christian businesses give uh, 
discounts wherever they can to its Christian supporters and whatever's being saved goes into the churches that we could have money that would take care of our poor, our widows, uh, that would even take care of medical costs that would, uh, that if there were, uh, rich donors among us that they would be investing maybe in real estate and renting to Christians. And again, the idea, at least economically, is to keep the money within the family of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few verses that come to mind would be that uh, when Paul says that do good to all people, but especially the household of faith, I mean, that puts a preference for Christians over non-Christians. And of course, Jesus says, that they, meaning the world, will know that we are Christ's disciples by our love, not for the world primarily, but for ourselves. So uh, some of the pastors that I've run into uh, are very uncomfortable with me giving preferential treatment to fellow Christians as opposed to, in their words, giving the culture a hug. And... uh, I, I do that because I believe that the Bible strongly says, hey, we are to treat the household of faith with preference. And, and you know, there's other ideas about this in Christ Redlands where we could, we could have dances uh, that would promote Christians marrying Christians because so often, um, or some kind of mingling thing, so mm-hmm. often uh, we lose a generation because they're desperate to find a mate and they find one in the world, and uh, we haven't given proper opportunity to, or the conviction to them, to find a fellow Christian, um, to build more Christian schools, to have a uh, exit strategy out of the public school. It would be, again, it would it would freak people out to um, to say, hey, you know what? It is in our best interest actually for the public school system to fail. You say it's failing, and so you want to throw more money at it, you want to do this, you want to reform what's broken. And I say, well, if it's broken, let it die. That's right. Uh, and let the Christian schools rise, let the homeschools rise, let the co-ops rise. Let us train young Christians to think Christ's thoughts, to be molded into his image. And again, it's not the same motive of, hey, I want my kid to go to Ivy League school, so I need to get them the good grades. That's not the objective. The objective is to have them become devoted disciples of Christ. Now, in that renewal of the mind, yeah, naturally you are going to be smarter. You're going to be challenged, but it's not the end goal of intellect. It's character that reflects Christ. That's right. And now you've been reaching out to the pastors, like I said before. Uh, have you made some headway with some of them? You were saying that uh, a few of them have uh, started to see things a little differently because of the, um, you know, some of the things you've been talking about. Yes, yeah, some of them I see that are uh, enjoying, hey, you know what? We're not in competition. Uh, we could pray together. We could work together. Uh, other uh, other churches, um I mean, I made predictions. I'm not going to mention them here, but I know they would never become part of this because uh, they have a superiority complex uh, that they believe that they're the only ticket in town. And uh, why would I want to pray with them? 
uh, you know, that one speaks in tongues and that one talks about tulips and that one talks about, uh, you know, all sorts of reasons that they want to divide um, that is really disheartening because my the verse that I gave to these pastors was Jesus's words at the high priestly prayer in John 17. And uh, if you remember this prayer, he talks about his disciples, but then he also talks about the disciples that will come after. And so literally Christ is praying for us here in 2016 that they would be one as he and his father are one. And that is a mind-blowing statement that he would see the unity between believers so tight that it would be an inter-Trinitarian type of relationship. Um, it still baffles my mind. I don't pretend to uh, know the ins and outs and how that would work, but I know that it is his will. And at the same time, you say, is it even conceivable that the Father would give would not give uh, Jesus what he asked for in accordance to his will. Uh, so we know that the churches are supposed to be unified. And here's how he ends that statement. He says, so that they, again, the world, will know that you sent me. So we're going on uh, evangelistic efforts here and there, knocking on doors or open air preaching and all that's fine. But really where it could start is simply letting the world see that churches actually have unity. And again, I'm not saying I know how it works, but I know what Jesus says. He says, if they could see that you disciples are unified, they will know that Christ is the son of God. And so I have to start there. You know, it, uh, it's very similar to uh, the scriptures talking about uh, that the nations are given to Christ as an inheritance. And I think that we have a, a little faith when we don't believe that. And, uh, and we become uh, pessimistic about the, the world around us. And the same thing happens with the church. I mean, we know we have a lot of work ahead of us. And that's why I often say that I believe, I truly believe that, we're, that the church is in its infancy right now. Uh, I think we have a long time to go. One of the things when we first start talking about planning this church, and uh, I'm glad you talked to me into the, the current mindset that we have, is being gracious to those who may have a differing view when it comes to baptism and, uh, and the Lord's Supper. Uh, you know, we're, you and I, are, uh, are all the leadership at our church, we, we do believe in covenantal communion. Uh, some people call it pedo communion. And uh, we believe it's, it's part of bringing in our complete family who is who are all part of the covenant into the fellowship and into the covenantal meal. Um, but at first I, I only wanted to, uh, you know, baptize in a Presbyterian manner, a Pado Baptist manner. And, but you talked to me into being more gracious. Uh, just talk a little bit about that. Well, when we went with um, our denominational affiliation, it was really that very point that helped attract me to it that, hey, the heads of household have convictions, and who are we to bar them from uh, their convictions if they haven't uh, traveled the road we've traveled? Uh, all of us have come to this point uh, through different routes, and we're not all at the same point. So if someone still has 
uh, a credo-baptistic leaning, and they they don't feel comfortable, then okay, then uh, we will still hold to our convictions. We'll still lead you along the way, but we're not going to force you into something. Uh, and if you want immersion, uh, you know that I've gone and I've got tanks. I've filled it up, and it's a hassle, <laughs> but I will do it. Um, our our standard mode, our default mode, would be to uh, simply pour water on your head because we don't want to make more out of the sign than we do the signified. We don't want to put too much emphasis on uh, the outer meaning as opposed to what it really is meaning in an eternal sense. So we have to kind of talk through the issues so that someone isn't saying, oh, it's about the amount of water or it's about this formula or that formula. We baptize in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, and that is the important part, that we are being placed in the community of faith into Christ, and that is really what we want to emphasize. And so, yeah, uh, if we're in Christ, then grace is an important part of showing we're in Christ. Amen. And so often we we get uh, we stop right there at that barrier and we divide. And uh, part of the Great Commission is to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then from there, teach all that he has commanded. And so I think many times when we, when we divide at that barrier, we, uh, we stop the natural process of the Great Commission and of discipleship. And it should not be so. But uh, you, you have a forthcoming book coming out next year for the 500th anniversary uh, of, the, of the Protestant Reformation. And we see that the church is in dire need of reformation again. You know, we, uh, with Martin Luther and the, and the reformers, we have straightened out justification by faith, but I think that we have a, uh, a further reformation uh, to, to go within the church and, and with uniting the church, as you say, and with proper uh, covenantal um, uh, community and how to engage with one another in fellowship. Uh, you know, there's a lot of work ahead of us. I want you to talk about your book, and uh, some of the contributing uh, writers that you that you brought aboard, and uh, just tell me, you know, how you came up with it and and uh, your plan. Okay, it was to me it was kind of a, a simple idea that oh we're about to study the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, uh, October 31st, 2017, and what was it about? Well, I would say it's primarily about sola scriptura, and and, and then there's of course the other. Uh, soli that you have there and the justification, yeah. And you you think back and go, how accessible was the Bible for that culture? And really, yes, Gutenberg uh, was already uh, doing his printing press, but uh, at the same time, it still wasn't very accessible. You look at the average Christian home and you're going to find probably a dozen Bibles laying around collecting dust. And so we are far more culpable for not behaving in accordance to the Word of God today than they were back in, in 1517. So uh, really what we have today is if, uh, beyond the other four soli, if you could just get back to sola scriptura and say, look, the Bible has every bit of authority to talk about every facet of life, then we 
can really reform the family, the church, and culture if we take the Bible seriously. And so, yeah, we I have obviously 95 topics, uh, and they're not just thesis statements the way Martin Luther did, but rather they are uh, five hundred to seven hundred word essays dealing with different topics and so thus far I have men like uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, I have John MacArthur, I have Roy Atwood, I have Peter Lightheart, I have um, John Frame, uh, I have uh, uh, Gene Veith, I have Kevin Swanson, um, I have, and this will be interesting, I probably have the last publishable piece by uh, Jerry Bridges, who just passed away uh, maybe a month and a half ago or so, um, uh, R.C. Sproul Jr., um, and I almost had Jay Adams, but uh, he's up in limbo right now, same with um, Stephen Lawson, but some really good names, and again, it's not really about the names as much as, hey, here's some voices that have some expertise in how the church ought to reform. Um, some of them, honestly, are better than others, but, um, you know, maybe that's my fault, um, but I think if this idea of reforming the church through 95 theses is good. It seemed painfully obvious to me. Uh, I knew at least there's one other guy who was working on the project that dropped it. I bet there's probably going to be several of these, and maybe there's going to be some overlap. Maybe there's not going to be some overlap, but I think uh, really when the anniversary comes along, I think they'll dig into the history a little bit and they'll go, you know, really it was all about getting back to the Bible. Let's do a one-year exercise of, of taking the Bible and making it the grid by which we view all of life. And if that kind of exercise is taken seriously with or without this book, I think the Holy Spirit will prick every heart and renew every mind to think biblically about life. And so I do have uh, high optimism for this anniversary if it is taken seriously, uh, and I would say by Protestants, but you know, even Catholics will um, have a renewed interest in this piece of history because they were obviously integral into the whole um, Reformation, even though they were maybe not always the... Um, the heroes of the story. Right. Are you still uh, soliciting uh, essayists for the book? Yes. Yes. And um, I had started this maybe four years ago, and then I ran into some trouble, and I had to lay it aside for a few years, and all of a sudden my back is against the wall. And yes, I have a good core of writers, but I have a lot of essays that remain unwritten that I need to continue to solicit. And uh, uh, I've written several that... Um, are on my heart, but I would, I would hate to be the one that ends up picking up more and more essays along the way when, uh, I think there are other voices out there that could probably do it better than I could. So where can people contact you have for this project? Uh, let's do covenant Kirk at gmail.com. That's uh, covenant. And, uh, the first requisite for you being a contributor would be know how to spell covenant and then Kirk <laughs> K-I-R-K, which is Scottish for church, at gmail.com. All right, sounds good. 
Brother, we're closing uh, the top of the hour here. Uh, is there anything else you want to you want to talk to and uh, talk about or, or tell the uh, listeners? Well, it's been a pleasure, and uh, I know that the church is going to revive, and I just pray that you are an active participant as opposed to a bystander. Uh, so let us put our hands to the plow and get about doing our Father's business. Amen. And uh, any websites you want to point to? Uh, yeah, we you could do covenantkirk.org. And uh, that's where uh, I serve as pastor. And uh, Jason, your host, is a prospective elder. So uh, it's a new work, and we we believe that we are doing church biblically, which is part of reforming the church. Thank you so much, brother, for being here on The War Room and for uh, giving us your time. And uh, I'll see you Sunday. All right. Blessings on you, brother. All right, brother. Thank you for joining us in the war room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples thought and vain? Seeking to rid themselves of Christ's dominion, a theme that's true in any age. Or tell me why do the heathen nations rage? The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete weekly lineup of eight distinct podcasts. Starting on Sunday, setting the record straight with pastors Gordon Runyon, Jason Garwood, and Joseph Randall Spurgeon. Mondays, the Post Mill Report with Nathan F. Conkey. Tuesdays, Axe to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Wednesdays, the Hellraiser Report with Scott Allen Buss. Thursdays, The War Room with Bill Evans and Jason Sanchez. Fridays, Once Dead, where Christians give testimonies of God's grace upon their lives. And Saturdays, Restoring America One County at a Time Lectures with Joel McDermott. And our new podcast, No Neutrality, with various contributors. Please don't forget to subscribe to each individual podcast or... The Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where you will get all of the content we produce, including our free audiobooks. Don't forget to go to reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator and to partner with us financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.